to James chapter 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently studying through the book of James, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we make our way through the entire New Testament, or at least from Acts chapter 1 on, Um, thoroughly enjoying ourselves. This is a very convicting book, a lot of practical instruction, be very easy to um, miss what God has for us as we study it. So it's a great privilege to be able to do that together. Let's, uh, let's begin in verse 1. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, Lord. We are thankful that it's all that we need and more. We're grateful, Lord, that you gave it to us to have you build our lives upon it, Lord. And we want to be fashioned by you. We want to be made further like Christ. We pray that you would use these verses in this chapter to that end, Lord. We pray that you would help us to not just hear your word, but to be doers of it, Lord. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have something to say to us that's eternal, that will outlive the heavens and the earth. We're grateful, Lord, that you don't stop working until you make us the most like Jesus as you possibly can. That's what we want. So we submit our lives to you. We submit our hearts to you. Speak to us anything you want to speak to us about, Lord. We're your servants. We're listening. We thank, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. James is continuing 
on as we continue in this chapter, this book that deals with practical holiness and how to live out an authentic faith. Living a life of not being authentic in terms of our faith is a really fast way to do damage related to God's kingdom. So many people are stumbled by hypocrisy. And I know none of us are perfect. We know that. But living as an actor and living outwardly and pretending to be something that we're not, even though we know inside we're not those things, does a lot of damage, and God knows it. And it also works against him making us to be more like Christ, and that's what he wants. So for us to look at this book and to be confronted and challenged, and we have been in so many things thus far, it would be foolish for us to not remind ourselves the importance of properly receiving the word of God. Not just with this book, but any time we read God's word, any time we're listening to God's word, we're sitting under someone teaching the word of God, we need to have the right perspective. Remember, Jesus gave this parable about the soils. And each soil represented different types of hearts. And he said the one that had the right heart not just received it, but obeyed it, and it bore fruit. And so we can be deceived, as we've already gone over in the book, thinking that, that what God's aiming at supremely in my life is, is knowledge. That's a Western way of dealing with learning, is just head knowledge. The Hebrew mind and heart didn't think you knew something until you had experienced it. And, and it carries over into how he says that we should receive God's word. We assess our lives sometimes by what we know instead of what we're obeying. And as we've already seen, he likens the word of God to a mirror. Because at any given time when I'm before a mirror, it assesses my current condition. That may change 10 minutes from now. It may change 30 minutes from now or the next day. It's always a current assessment of my appearance. And thus, God's word is a current assessment of my spiritual condition. So I want to remind us, we're we're a little way, you know, past halfway in the book. Are we just learning or studying this or coming on Sundays as we sit here and are we just wanting to learn information or are we wanting to be changed? It's a good reminder for myself included. If we have not repented once, this this book (laughs) reveals a very high standard of personal holiness. We've talked about our tongue. We've talked about asking for wisdom. We've talked about uh, going through trials. We've talked about not showing hypocrisy or partiality. We've talked about seeing people the same as, as God does. There's so many areas where we, uh, uh, that we could be convicted over. And if we haven't repented one time, we're in danger of, uh, I mean, maybe you're living much higher than I realize or much higher than anyone else is living. I don't know. But we have to be very careful to not go through this whole book, which is very convicting, and not have repented once. We could sit here and go, you know, that's true, I need to do that. That's not repenting. That's being corrected. That's not repenting. Repenting is saying, I'm not going to do that anymore, God. By your grace and by your power, I turn from that. I ask your forgiveness. That's what repenting is. Not just going, oh, yeah, I, I see that I don't measure up to that. I see that I shouldn't do that. Oh, man, I fall short in that, that area. Or that's good to know. Oh, yeah, I knew that at one time. I've been reminded. I'm, I'm encouraged. But I don't do it today. I didn't do it yesterday. I didn't do it last week. That's deception. We need to have the weight of this word of God hit us full steam. Because myself included, we can think, oh, we're okay because I know this truth. God isn't aiming supremely at us knowing any truth. He's, he's aiming at us obeying the truth at any given moment. 
Last Sunday, I could have been obeying uh, taming the tongue. I failed before I got out of the parking lot. Brother Jim <laughs> said something that wasn't edifying, wasn't horrible. It was just, you know, insulting the Seahawks. Um, <laughs> uh, but it still wasn't edifying. And I said, see, I couldn't even get out of the parking lot, Jim, you know. And, and, and so all of us fall short. And, and I recognize the amount of self-control Brother Dave is using right now. I just want to acknowledge that publicly. Uh, today is the first day of the season. Anyway, let's move on before we get in the flesh. So the issue is for us to obey God's word by his grace and not just learn information. It, it, we constantly have to be reminded of this. We can go whole weeks and months, maybe even years, without even letting God's word have its needed place in our life to where we see that we don't, we don't meet the standard, but we're not repenting. We need to be repenting every time God confronts us and shows us uh, what, what needs to change. Now, this morning in chapter 4, James deals with the many ways our sinful nature expresses itself <laughs> and deals with it, the, it head on. And I love the clarity with which James, by the Spirit, deals with our flesh. We need to have the clarity of God's word. Who else is saying how wicked our flesh is? Try to find somewhere, someplace, even in many churches, unfortunately, because so often they're not going through every verse, and they're not, you know, people aren't being confronted by the high standard of God's word, and, 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 and they're not being told the true nature of their issue, which is their, sin, their sinful nature is the problem. So he begins uh, with conflict. Notice in verse 1, he asks two questions. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? So first question, where do conflicts come from? He deals with that. And notice he says, among you. Do you see those two words there at the end, the end of the first question? Among you. God's people? Conflict? Could that be possible? Not us. That's a different church. Uh, that, that's, that's Calvary Chapel of the perfect people somewhere out there. Not us. But it's true. We, we deal with conflict all the time. It's very helpful for us to know how to deal with conflict. God's people have always struggled. And, there's, and what I love the fact about God's word is he doesn't hide stuff. If, I know the Jews didn't write the Old Testament. There's no way they would have been that honest. In the sense of if they just came up with it themselves. They would never have lied. or, or, or They never would have told the truth about themselves the way they do. How many times did they turn their backs on God? They, if they would have made that up, they would have never painted themselves like that. The disciples didn't write the New Testament. They were fighting among themselves who's going to be the greatest. Would you include that? If you were Peter, would you include, uh, you know, that he denied the Lord three times? I mean, it's brutally honest. But all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see conflict. Lot caused a quarrel with his uncle Abraham. Absalom fought against his, his father David. Again, the disciples were fighting about who's the greatest. Those disciples, the ones that Jesus handpicked, we're fighting among themselves who's going to be the greatest. In fact, uh, James and John tried to get Jesus to let them in heaven be at his right hand and, and his left hand. And they even got a, their mom involved. And all the disciples were greatly displeased when they heard of it, we're told. They were fighting who's going to be the greatest. The, even the churches that Paul had to deal with had issues. The Corinthian church were suing one another. They were competing and related to spiritual gifts in public meetings. Where Paul said to the Galatians, you're biting and devouring one another. 
And Paul even had to admonish the, the Ephesians to be in unity. And, the, and, the, and also the church of Philippi had two women, Eodia and Syntyche, that were battling each other and fighting each other. And it was causing a big problem in the church. So conflict uh, is, is all through uh, the history of God's people. Why do, why do we think that God commands us to love one another? Why would he have to command us to love one another? Why would he tell us to forgive one another if we didn't have to be told that? It's because there's occasion for conflict all the time. Now, he gives us the origin of it in the second question. He says, and it has to do with the origin of conflicts. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your your members? That's the second part of verse 1. The root cause of our conflicts is not the devil. It's not circumstances. It's not anything else, not my background, my family history, my propensity for anger. It's not any, anyone else's fault. He says the conflict, the source of our conflict comes because of your desires for pleasure that war in our members. James by the Spirit just comes right in with the clarity that we need and says it's you. You're the problem. You're the issue. We want to blame shift. We want to get out of responsibility and blame shift. And, and, and God says, I, I don't want you to even be deceived one bit. The, the, the problem is you. These desires come from your sinful natures. And far before you war with others and battle and conflict with others, there's a war that is within you that overflows into your conflict in your interpersonal relationships. And it's your desire for things that you shouldn't have. Remember what he said last week in James chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The wisdom, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. He says where self-seeking exists and envy, every confusion and every evil thing are there. Isn't that what he's describing uh, here in chapter 4? He's describing dysfunction because people are being self-seeking about what's in it for them. And it carries over into when we meet together, when we come among one another. We should never be self-seeking when we come um, around one another. We should never be self-seeking anyway, period. But especially when God's people come together, it should be supremely for, for God and for others and how they can benefit. Can you imagine if the church was like that just generally all the time? I mean, it's like that a lot here, but... I know we have a lot of room to grow, but can you imagine in every church, if every believer, when they come together, were the opposite of self-seeking and just were supremely concerned about the benefit of others and, and serving others? It's a, it's a beautiful thing that God's trying to accomplish in us, but we can resist it. He says in verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. What is lust? Lust is desiring something that's forbidden. That's what lust is. You know, you may, before you come to be married as a Christian, you have to control your thoughts related to your future spouse. You're you're tempted to lust after them. And then when you get married, that goes away because they're not forbidden anymore. They, They belong to you. Their body belongs to you. And, and so things that we want that were forbidden, God says, 
you, you need to focus on those things. You need to take, recognize that those things war inside of you, and if you don't take up your cross daily and follow me and die to those things, they will overflow into the, and have implications on the rest of the people that are around you. And so often we think, we wonder why conflict goes wherever we go. It's like uh, everywhere I go, I'm, I, there's conflict. The problem could be very well be you because you're bringing it wherever you go. Well, I went to this church and couldn't get along with anybody, and there are problems there. And then I went to another church, and there are problems there. I went to another church, and there are problems. Everywhere I go, it seems like there's conflict. Well, it might be because your, your issues that are, are not being bridled or not being controlled are overflowing into every situation that you find yourself in. And so he, he wants to warn us against that. He says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Covet is synonymous with, with lusting, being covetous. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. And that, that commandment really got Paul. When he thought about him measuring his life up against the law, uh, outwardly he was obedient to a lot of things before he came to know Christ. But that covet, he mentions that by name in, in the book of Romans. That covet, covetousness command was something that, it wasn't something that, that, that was outward, it was something that's inward. And that got him because inwardly, how it's, it's much harder to control things inwardly than it, they ever are to be controlled outwardly. And so he says, don't do it. Now, the question comes here in, in verse 2 is, is it possible for Christ, that these, he's talking about believers actually murdering there in verse 2? You murder and covet. And I think it's probably more likely he's given a proper perspective to what was going on in, the, in, in their hearts. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he said this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So the Lord Jesus says, just because you don't outwardly murder doesn't mean that hatred in your heart doesn't make you guilty. And he kind of compares it to murder. So it's very possible that this hatred, these, remember, they're having these conflicts. He's, it's possible that he's saying that, that you're engaged in something far greater than you realize. You're actually engaging it with, with uh, these people with murderous hearts there. And, you're, and you are very guilty. And so he, he wants us to not hate people. Do you hate someone today? Should never be in, in the heart of any child of God, at least not very long. We shouldn't hate people, especially in the body of Christ. And hatred can have different forms to it. We wouldn't necessarily want to admit that we're hateful towards someone, but yet we avoid them and never want, we make sure we never talk to them. We make sure we never do anything to help them. We may even say some evil things behind their back, but we wouldn't necessarily admit that we're hateful, but you're being hateful when you're doing those things. So let's, let's be honest with, with what's really going on. He says, you fight and war. We should not be contentious with each other. What did Jesus say about walking the extra mile or giving someone your coat? You know, if they want something, give them more. He, he says it's, and he said this to the Corinthian church through Paul, that it'd be better to be wronged and to, to lose out than to sue another Christian in court. It, it, it drags God's name through the mud, so to speak. But we're so, we have hold things so tightly related to our physical possessions and, and the things that, that give our flesh a lot of power to do the things that it wants to do. We will fight at all costs to maintain those things instead of just saying, you know, everything that I have is God's. And so 
you want that? Go ahead and have it. I remember in the school of ministry that I oversaw, one of the teachers uh, said in one of the classes to the students who was bickering about a grade, he said, uh, you want an A? I'll just give you an A for the whole semester. If that's what you're here for is for grades, then I'll give you an A. And that really shocked that student. It's like, oh, okay, there's something greater than just grades here, you know. So that's, that's a, a very strong exhortation for us. Then notice he adds the reasons for unanswered prayer at the end of verse 2 and end of verse 3. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So the first thing here, issue, is that we have not because we ask not. And that's something that we need to stop and pause uh, for because I know that that Jesus said that your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. So that can cause us to go, you know, I don't even need to ask God. We're so spiritual, we don't need to pray and ask for things. But Jesus said, you need to ask, you need to seek, you need to knock. Yes, the father knows what you need before you ask, but he wants us to participate in that provision for us. And so he says, you have to ask. The picture here is that people were taking things by force and trying to make themselves receive things by other people being manipulated and controlled and contended with and not going to God in prayer and saying, Lord, if you really want me to have this, please provide it. I I shouldn't have to take something or try to make something happen. God never puts things under our control to make something happen. If we're supposed to have it, uh, we don't have, nothing will be forced. But maybe you're here today and you've been wanting something for a long time and you just haven't asked you haven't asked God. Ask him. Ask him repeatedly. And, and it, you'll be amazed at what he blesses you with. The second issue is that they were asking with wrong motivation. You, see, don't ask, you, you ask and do not. So some of you don't ask. Some of you do ask. But when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your. Notice the word your. Your pleasures. You ever ask something of God with selfish motives? It's not just me. There's other people here. I feel comforted. Thank you for being uh, honest. But you ask God with selfish motives. Now, does that mean that we can't ask for needs that are in our lives? No, that's, that's not what he's talking about here. We're told to ask for things. But the issue is, remember, the context is lust. The context is things that are forbidden or the context of things that he hasn't said we can have. Maybe they're good things. Because, see, we think that automatically if we lust or covet, that it has to be something sinful in and of itself. That's not the picture here. He's saying it, it may be totally fine for people to have, for Christians to have, but I haven't planned for you to have that. And so you are trying to make that happen, and you are having desires for that, and I've already told you, or I want to reveal to you, that that's not for you. But because of your calling, your unique place in the body of Christ, you are not to have that thing. And so we can ask and ask and ask, and he says, you have the wrong motivation. The longer I walk with the Lord, I'm increasingly thankful for the prayers he didn't answer. I look back and I go, oh, man, was that stupid to ask for that. I couldn't have got, made more, more of a stupid request. You ever had your kids when they're really, really little, they ask for something, it's just absolutely ridiculous, and you say no, and they freak out and throw a tantrum and go on the ground and you're like, the Tasmanian devil has manifested himself here. 
you know, spinning around. And, and, and then you, they realize later, oh, you knew what you were doing. I actually had one of my kids say that to me one day. You know, you know what you're doing, Dad. I'm like, thanks for that validation there. Uh, but, you know, he says, you look back at things and you see clearly, you see, wow, I was... I, didn't, I shouldn't have had that thing at the time, and that's why he didn't give it to me, or that's why this situation didn't work out the way that it, that it did, or it worked out the way that it did in a certain way. Just when you question God, think of the cross, no matter what it is. When you have honest questions, why, God, are you allowing this? Why are you not giving me this? Why are you working in such a way? Just look at the cross. Take a good, long gaze at the cross. You'll never question anything ever again because God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You never question his motivation, his love, his judgment, his wisdom ever again when you look at that cross. That's the first thing that should come to our mind when we're tempted to question him, the cross. He knows what he's doing and, and I don't. And so later on you'll see, and, and even if we don't see it in this life, someday we will see the wisdom of why he did things the way he did in our lives. And so he says, trust me. Now he says in verse 4 something that is very hard to receive. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, and the word enmity means hatred, with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this isn't James heaping on condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he is speaking of a spiritual adultery. All through the Old Testament, Hosea, Jeremiah, many different prophets, they prophesied, and God communicated that they were committing spiritual adultery. We think that the imagery of a bridegroom and a bride related to the body of Christ and, and, and Christ is the first time that that imagery has been there. He's had that for a long time in the Old Testament. And they would turn to their wicked ways and they would start serving idols and they'd turn their backs on God and he would call them adulterers or adulteresses here. And, and remember, this is a Jewish audience. These people are believers, but they had a Jewish background. So he's saying adulterers and adulterers, they knew exactly what he was saying. They weren't committing physical adultery or physic in any way. This is spiritual. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred with God? And if you want to be God's, um, if you want to be the friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. But this begs the question, well, how am I supposed to reach the world? Jesus hung out with sinners. Was he a friend of the world? No. There's a difference between being salt and light and being an influence for Christ, being among those that are in the world, not being of it, but being in it, and, and, and actually being a friend of the world. And what's the difference? And I want to make this really clear for us. When you, remember, he's tying this to sinful desires, right? And the world is all about sinful desires and meeting the needs of their needs of their flesh and so forth and doing whatever their impulses tell them to do. That's the way that this world functions. They function on a physical plane. There's no spiritual plane whatsoever with God. They don't have that capacity because they don't know Christ. So they're engaged in sinful behavior. That's, that's the idea. So if a, a person is taking in all the things of this world and they're ignoring their relationship with God and they are subjecting themselves to whatever this world wants them to do and being conformed uh, by the world, then they're setting themselves up as an enemy of God. He's telling this to believers here. Let's look at the, 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 the weight of this. He's saying don't be a friend of the world. 
Be, be a servant of Christ and, and, and don't commit spiritual adultery. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Perfect cross-reference. The ways of this world. That's why he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. Don't love it in the sense of, I'm putting it before God. We can enjoy things as Christians. We see it as a blessing from God. But those things can't become so important and eclipse my love for the Lord in any way. And that can creep in. And we can be fine with this one week and not fine with it the next week. Or this month I'm good, next week I'm struggling with this. So it's not something we can put our guard down over. Paul wrote to the Romans in in chapter 12, verse 2. He said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Important. We're not to be conformed by this world. We're supposed to be transformed by our minds being renewed by the word of God. Then he says something very interesting in verse 5. He says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Wow. When we have our affections placed somewhere else. Remember, this is a, we're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. That's a very real relationship to him. It's not just symbolism. It's not hyperbole. It's not a metaphor. It's a very real relationship that we have with him. We've been betrothed to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He sees every affection that we have. And when our hearts go a different direction towards other things, he takes it very seriously. He considers it, again, spiritual adultery. But then we also see in verse 5 that the Spirit who dwells in us as Christians, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us. He yearns jealousy. He's jealous. I remember when I was dating Sandy, and we went to, um, why are you laughing already? Um, we, went to, uh, <laughs> we went to Russia in 1993, right before we got married. And there was a tour guide there, Russian girl, and she was convinced that she liked me, and she didn't like it. You know, and this girl would come up and she'd lock her arm with me and walk with me. You know, I'm like, oh, cool. You know, they're very friendly here. And, 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 <laughs> and Sandy was, was like, no, you, you don't understand. I'm seeing the way she's looking at you, how she's talking. You know, and I said, oh, pff, come on, get over it. This, you know, but there was that jealousy there. And, and, and when God, God has such an affection for us, I think we underestimate his affection that he has for us. And when we look to the world and we're immersing, immersing our mind and our hearts and we're going all these other directions apart from where God has us, he's jealous. And of all the things that he shouldn't have to experience because of what he's done for us, jealousy is one of them. He should not have to be jealous for us. We're told not to quench the spirit. We're told not to grieve the spirit. But here it says we're told not to provoke him to jealousy. He has a very devoted heart towards you and he wants full love directed to him from you not towards anything else verse 6 gives us hope he says but he gives more grace 
Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he knows how needy we are. And I want us to understand this verse. This is not saying if you're humble, you earn God's grace in your life. Because you can't earn grace by definition. It's something that you get that you don't deserve. But what humility does is it places me in a position where I can receive his grace. And so he says, if you're humble, if, if you're proud, and the word resist there is a military word. It's the word they would use to set up a, a, an encampment against the opposite uh, uh, military. It's like a whole military regimen set up against us. That's the term that he uses in the Greek there. He's saying, I will resist you. If you are proud, I will resist you. I will set up a military front against you. And so often when we get uh, prideful and we you know, see ourselves above and so forth, we start um, putting our, play, our hearts in, in such a place where we can't receive God's grace. And he wants to give us hope that if we humble ourselves and we see the air of our way here, and we, maybe we haven't had our heart directed in the right place. And maybe we have provoked the spirit to jealousy. And remember, maybe it is an accurate assessment that we've committed spiritual adultery. God doesn't leave us in that condition and say, just work it out. He says, I'll give you more grace. But you need to humble yourself, place yourself in a position where you can receive his undeserved blessing in our lives. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is a verse we throw out all over the place without looking at the context. There's a context of him being jealous for us and us humbling ourselves before him. And we know that the enemy works very hard for us to maintain that self-dependence and that pride because he knows that we won't be recipients of God's grace if we do. And he says if that's going on and we have a prideful heart and if we, you know, we sense that we are taking our, our lives back and we're, we're being the Lord of our own lives again and we're, we're being prideful, he says, submit to God. Notice the word therefore. It's because of what he's already said. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Nowhere in scripture are we told to rebuke the devil. Nowhere in scripture are we, are we told to bind the devil. We're told to resist the devil. Now, if there's someone that's demon-possessed, we can rebuke demons out of that person in Jesus' name as believers. But we're never told, apart from that context, that we can just rebuke the devil and we can, we can uh, you know, bind him and so forth. But we're told that we, and especially insult him, we, cannot, we should not insult the devil. We're told that in the New Testament. We'll get to that later in the, in the New Testament. But we're told that resisting, and there's an order here. Notice he doesn't say resist the devil and he will flee from you and submit to God. He's, he's reversed. We submit ourselves to God. God's the one that has, is the focal point for us. He's our focus. We can be so preoccupied with the enemy. I mean, I used to see a demon behind every rock. Everything was the enemy. Everything was spiritual warfare. Everything was the demon of this, the demon of that. There's the joke of a man, you know, exercising someone that had uh, demons in him and said, name yourself. And the demon said, um, lying spirit. And he said, how do I know you're telling the truth? You know? It was a bad joke then, it's a bad joke now, so, but uh, that was it, that was all you get. But there is an order. We, resist, we, we have to submit ourselves to God. That is how we resist the devil. We don't have to say, I resist you in the name of Jesus, you know, in this fancy way of saying it or whatever, or have to say it in, with a certain boldness or whatever. We submit ourselves to God and we resist the enemy. It says he will. Notice he doesn't say can flee, should flee. He says he will flee from us. Very important for us to see. Paul wrote the Galatians and said, walk in the spirit. He will not gratify the lust of the flesh. 
He didn't say, if you don't gratify the lust of the flesh, you'll walk in the Spirit. Again, it's, it, the, the, the order is different. He says, walk in the Spirit. And the result of that is that you won't gratify the lust of the flesh. Then we're told in Romans, he said, by the Spirit, if I put to deeds the death, put to death the deeds of the body, I shall live or we shall live. It's by the Spirit that we resist the devil. Now look at the encouragement he says in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Sometimes we erroneously think that, well, once God draws near to me, then I'm going to draw near to him. Again, we have it backwards. We can have as intimate of a relationship with him as we want. There's nothing holding us back. And the reason why he puts that up in, our, in the, the ball in our court, so to speak, is because he wants it to be volitional. He wants it to be something that we, that we initiate because our desire is to get closer to him. He doesn't want to overpower us or force his way into our lives. He doesn't do that. He wants us to draw near to him. And he says, notice, he will, not can, not should, he will draw near to me. He doesn't say, I'll know that's true if I feel it. He says, it will happen because God's word says it. A mature believer is focusing on what God's word says and believing that by faith than having to feel anything. But I didn't have goosebumps. Is that really a barometer for anything? Is that, is that in the Bible anywhere? Am I saying that God can't use your goosebumps or whatever, your, you know, to cause goosebumps to, to, to show you something? I'm not limiting God. But come on. He says, I will do this because I said I will do it. Maybe you need to draw near to God today. Maybe you've been keeping distant from him. Go aggressively towards him. Aggressively. He will draw near to you. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. He will manifest himself to you in just the way that you need if you'll obey him in that. But he's not going to force it. He's going to compel you. He's going to draw you by his spirit. He's going to, you're going to feel that tug, but he's not going to make you go forward. As it's been said, you can take 10,000 steps away from him, but it's only one step back. And maybe someone here is, you've been 10, 20, 30,000 steps away from him. One step back and you're there. Now he gives us clarity further and he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Again, James struggling to be clear with us. How do you really feel, James? Um, but he's, you know, the, the, an accurate assessment there is, is for all to see because he's saying, cleanse your hands, you purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember he said already in chapter 1, if you ask, you're in a trial and you ask for wisdom and you don't ask in faith that God will give it, then you shouldn't think that you're going to receive anything from God, that you're double-minded, unstable in all your ways. You're like a man that's tossed, like the waves are tossed. And so, yeah, you know, it, it's hard to hear these things, but it's true. We need the exhortation. We need the encouragement that we don't want to be double-minded. We want to be single-minded, having our minds focused on him. And whatever, need, whatever change needs to happen, we need to, to do that. And, and then the question is, why does he put in there, lament and warn, mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom? Because if we're in willful disobedience to God, and we think everything's fine, and we're laughing, and we're having a great time, and, and we think that everything's wonderful, he's saying, you're deceived. 
You, 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 your response to your life is inappropriate. It's not commensurate with how you're living. If you're living in disobedience to God and willful disobedience, you should not have the response of laughter and, and joy and all these things. Your proper response should be mourning and weeping because you are not being a good steward of, of what God has done for you. And your life is not living in line with how he wants us to live. And so he says, if you are in that place, and maybe some of us are here, you're in willful disobedience to God. And you think everything's fine. He wants to take that rug right out from under you in a, in a loving, appropriate way and say, you don't have any place to be joyful or happy right now because this isn't what God has for you. He has something so much better for you. But it will require, verse 10, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And when you do that, he will lift you up. You don't have to lift yourself up. You don't have to try to do it yourself and try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, so to speak. Who has bootstraps? We don't say that anymore. I don't know why we... Who knows what bootstraps are? I guess they're straps that you... I don't know what they are. But it's a good illustration back 30 years ago. So he says, he will lift you up in, in due time. Now he deals with slander next in verses 11 and 12. Look with me there. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? So we're not supposed to speak evil. Again, the whole context is having as, as a war, is battling other believers, being contentious, fighting. He's, and, and usually in that context, you're not taming your tongue that he spoke about last chapter. And you're speaking evil things. And again, the context is believers here. This is the church. We should never speak evil of anybody, especially those that are in the church. And he says, once we do that, we've set ourselves up as a judge. And he says, that calling is not what your calling is. You and I have not been called to be a judge. We are called to test things by Scripture. We, all, we are called to be discerning. We are called to notice people's fruit you know Jesus said that you know we'll know them by their fruits mainly talking about false prophets but he's saying that's that we have we're supposed to have discernment and so forth but that's something entirely different than judging someone's heart judging someone's motives why they're doing what they're doing we come to conclusions all the time about why people do what they do and we haven't received a word of knowledge from God about that we have no idea why they're doing what they're doing and so we can't go there in our mind. We have to control our heart, control our minds, and not judge people about their motivation and, and, and judge their hearts. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he said, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So we can't judge people's hearts or motivation. We need to look at ourselves first. When we're, usually the thing that irritates us about people are our weaknesses. <laughs> you ever notice that? 
If you really think about it, the thing that people do over and over again that bug us are usually the things that we struggle with. And our sin looks really bad on other people, doesn't it? So he's saying, be gracious, be forgiving, don't judge people's motivations. But he also said, do not give what is holy to dogs, and, and, and nor cast your pearls before swine. So there's, there's a discernment that's supposed to be there in terms of what people are, you know, what their lives represent, and be careful. But he's saying, still, you don't know their motivation. You don't know what's going on in their heart. Now, verses 13 and 14, he talks about our, our, our carnal plans that we can make. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanish away. Sometimes you'll hear, you know, someone say, we're going to do this, Lord willing. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about these verses. My whole life is, is subjected to his plan, to his uh, leading in my life. And, and I'm, I've been shocked with it myself, and I've been shocked with it in other people, how many plans people make, and they never pray about it. And then they'll get mad if you ask them if they prayed about it. What do you mean I don't pray about it? Of course I kind of had a prayer thought go through my head for a second or not at all you know our lives are not our own that's the clarity of God's word we've been bought with a price we're bond servants we have a master we don't lead the Lord around asking him to bless our plans he says take up your cross daily and follow me he didn't say I'm going to take up my cross and follow you he says you take up your cross and follow me and we can get that (laughs) turned around sometimes I'm amazed at the decisions that we make sometimes and we never pray about it at all. Things that have to do with ministry, things have to do with being around other believers. Oh, that's just not me or I'm not that type of person or I don't get much out of it. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're supposed to be doing things supremely for others. Maybe you you didn't really care about going to that certain event or whatever, but maybe it wasn't supremely for your enjoyment. Maybe you're supposed to be an encouragement to other people at that event. Maybe you're supposed to be using your spiritual gifts at that event. Maybe, maybe someone was there that needed you to pray for them. Or I, don't, I have no idea. The point is, we make decisions all the time. We'll, we'll say, oh, well, if that happens, then this is what I'm going to do. I've even heard some, some, of it, some of that out of our own leaders at times. If this happens, I'm doing this. And I'll say, whoa, please correct me if I ever say that. And you need to be corrected right now. You have no idea what you're going to do if this happens. Because at that moment, the Lord Jesus is going to show you, or in the future, soon after that, show you what you should do. You can't just make up that decision right now. It's the same when Jesus talked about the man who built the bigger barn, you know, because he was blessed so much. And he, you know, and Jesus said that his life was required of him that very day. Our lives are a vapor. They're going to be gone one day to the next. Life is so precious. And again, you question whether or not God has a good motivation for your future and his plan for you. Look at the cross. He knows exactly what would be best for you. If you doubt that, look at what he sacrificed for us on the cross. We need to take everything before the Lord and ask him. Be careful. Fast and pray. Seek wise counsel. Being quick to make decisions about our lives is something that God wants to stop us from because he knows he has the best plan for us. So let's not do that. Let's let's take this uh, exhortation seriously. Now notice he gives us... uh, The solution in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this 
or that. But you boast, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So we, we should say, if it's the Lord's will, he's the one in control. He's the one leading my life. Yes, I have preferences. He's fairly aware of my preferences. I don't have to tell him. I can tell him, but I don't have to tell him. And it's not necessarily his plan for our lives. Taking up our cross daily and following him leads us to the long-term plan for our lives. It doesn't mean he can't show us things ahead of time and so forth, but definitely him saying, I'm going to, you know, you need to have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 15-year plan, a 20-year plan. Jive that with this verse. I just can't make that happen because I don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next, but he does. And so I can, I can trust him. And this whole verse on verse 17, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's taken out of context as well. There are sins of commission where we commit sin, and this is the verse that we learn about related to sins of omission. Something that God tells me to do that's good, and I don't do it, and to me it's sin. So that, that is true, but let's look at it in the context of everything that we've been seeing here. Because God knows my future. He has a plan for my life. To follow what God has for my life, his plan for my life, he defines that as good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that good is further defined at the next verse in Romans 8.29, that he's, furthering, he's, he's further conforming us into the image of his son. So that's his end goal for us. So he's saying, if you know what to, to him who knows to do good, talking about our, our plan, that, the plan that he has for our lives and where he's leading our lives, and we ignore that plan and we go and do whatever we want based on our own plans, it's sin. That's what ultimately verse 17 is talking about. Now, obviously, he leads us to do things in, in other contexts, and if we don't do it, it's sin, and he doesn't want that for us as well. But that's the main uh, interpretation for verse 17 that is in line with the context. So, again, so much here, so much more than just learning knowledge. Think back. Where is it here that I, have, I been, have I been using my tongue in an inappropriate way? Have I had bad motives? Have I been fighting with someone? Have I been forgiving people? Have I been making plans without seeking the Lord? Have I been showing partiality towards people? I mean, there's all kinds of things. Hypocrisy. I mean, fighting with people and, and making all these things come through my life and not allowing God to, to, to shape those things and to, and to change those things to make them something that he wants to happen through my life. Very important. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. There's so much in this chapter, Lord, and we thank you for your great grace, Lord. We need more grace. We need much more grace. So we pray, Lord, that you would pour, pour it out upon our lives. Help us now to, 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 to repent of these things. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us hope and encouragement, Lord. We thank you that you keep us on a short leash and that you keep uh, leading us and guiding our lives, Lord, and, and making us more like Christ. We want to be like you, Lord. I pray that everyone in this church would deeply desire to be more like you, Jesus, by your grace and by your power. In your name, amen.